If you have not grabbed a uh, bulletin, make sure that you do grab one. We'll be continuing to go through the London Baptist Confession, and on the inside of the bulletin, you'll notice that we are in chapter 19 this evening. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We have been doing a study through the, our church's confession, the London Baptist Confession, on Wednesday evenings, and we have come at this point to chapter 19 on the topic of the law of God. I wonder what kind of response you find in your heart when you hear the phrase, the law of God. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the law of God? Maybe for some, like David, you think something that is precious, you treasure it. And Psalm 119 is all about the precious character of the law of God and how, how David treasures the law of God and meditates on the law of God, loves the law of God. Maybe, maybe that's your response when you hear the phrase, the love of God. Or maybe you think misery, condemnation, rules, inability, judgment. Maybe those are the types of things that you think of when you think of the law of God. So which is it for the Christian? How should we think of the law of God? Is the law of God something beautiful that we should treasure, or is it something enslaving that we should tremble at and run from? If you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 8. We'll look at the first few verses of Romans chapter 8 to set the tone for our study this evening. I think this is a good summary of how we ought to think about the law as believers. Romans 8 Verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So notice just a couple things in that sentence. First of all, as a believer, what we can say with absolute certainty is that the law no longer condemns you. Okay, so let's make sure we've got that foundation laid before we take another step forward in our study this evening. As a believer, Romans 8 makes perfectly clear the law of God no longer condemns you. And why does the law of God no longer condemn you? What does it say in Romans 8? The law of God no longer condemns you because you've been set free from it. You've been set free from the condemnation of the law. How have you been set free from the condemnation of the law? What's Romans 8 say? Anyone want to shout it out? How have you been set free from the condemnation of the law? I see lips moving. I'm not going anywhere until someone shouts it out. Union with Christ. Who fulfilled the law for us? Jesus did. Okay, so the law was weak. Why was the law weak? because of our sin, right? Was the law weak because of something lacking in the perfection of the law? No. 
The law was not weak or deficient in itself. What made the law weak and deficient to save us? Our sin. Christ fulfilled the law in order to set us free from the law of sin and of death. But then what's the next step in, in, in Paul's thinking in these verses? So, so everyone following so far, we were dead because we could not keep the law. Christ kept the law for us. He set us free from the condemnation of the law. For what purpose? Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is, if you want, here's a summary statement for tonight's teaching. The law is precious. Every moral command that God has placed on your life is a good thing. And your life only increases in misery to the degree that you choose to disobey it. And so the best thing that you could ever choose to do with your life is to give yourself entirely to the obedience of God's commands. That is what would be best for you. That would, that, that would be best for the glory of God. The bad news is, you can never do that in your sin and in your flesh. You're not able. The good news is, Christ fulfilled the law for you in order to give you his spirit. And so that now as you walk by the spirit, you're no longer bound by inability to keep the law. But the law is actually fulfilled in you. The spirit enables you to begin to obey the law of God. What law? The same law. The law, the same law that condemned you in your sin, is the law that Christ now enables you to obey in the Spirit. Everyone following so far? That's the foundational teaching for the law of God for the Christian. It does not condemn you, but by the Spirit of Christ, you're now able to fulfill the commands of the law. Now, why, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, it's important because when we think about obedience to God— the framework for understanding what obedience is has not changed when it comes to the moral law. The same commands that have always been a reflection, a revelation of God's righteous character from the very beginning are the same commands that govern the way you and I live today. And so some would say, when you get to the New Testament and you're a New Testament Christian, the law is now just love. You just love you don't need the Old Testament law. You don't need the moral law, the Ten Commandments. You just need to love by the Spirit of God. And to that, I would say, amen in one sense. Yes, amen. The Spirit of God enables us to love, and it is the law of love that is being worked out in us as we follow Christ. But what characterizes that law of love? How do we know what love is? How do we know what it looks like to love God and to love others? God's given us very clear commandments in the Ten Commandments, in the Moral Law, in the Decalogue. And so as a believer, we're not under the law when it comes to condemnation, but we are called to fulfill the law by the Spirit of God as he enables us to do it. And that's what's pleasing and honoring to Christ our King. All of that by way of foundation. I didn't know how to start the talk other than just trying to clear, clearly say this is, this is what it is to walk in the law as a, as a Christian, not for justification, not for salvation, but because we've been justified. It's now how we please our king and our maker. What the confession does 
Now that that somewhat of a foundation is laid, what the confession does, if you actually, if you flip over to the back of your bulletin, you'll notice three headings, three main headings. The confession first, in the first two paragraphs, it gives somewhat of a biblical history of the, of the law. Where did it start and how did it progress through biblical history up until the time of Mount Sinai? The second section talks about the threefold division of the law. So at Sinai, a law, a moral law was given, and then added to that, there was the ceremonial and the judicial law. So three elements or distinct aspects of the law, the threefold division of the law. And then lastly, the function of the moral law, particularly in the life of the believer. What is the function of the law in your life today? And so we'll start with that first section, the biblical overview, the biblical history of the law. And you'll notice point A there, it's originally given to Adam. This is the first paragraph, so if you, I'm sorry, I'll go ahead and apologize. I'm going to make you flip back and forth in your bulletin because I couldn't fit it all on the inside. And so the first paragraph deals with the law that was given to Adam in the garden. It says in, in the first paragraph, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a specific precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By this, God bound Adam and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life upon fulfillment of the law and threatened death upon the breach of it. God also endued Adam with power and ability to keep the law. All right, so just a couple of things there from that paragraph that I think are important and are worth calling attention to. First, Notice in, in the way that it's described, there are two aspects to the law that was given to Adam. So if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We read in verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, that's, we all, we all know that. We've heard that, right? God has created us in his image and in his likeness. And I, I hope to show in just a moment what that means, but hold on to that for a second and then jump to chapter 2 and verses, I think, 15. Yeah, verse 15 to 17. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Okay, this is what I would like to argue from those two verses. The image, or those two sets of verses, one verse in chapter 1, three verses in chapter 2. In chapter 1, the image of God... I think, largely has to do with the ability of mankind to be moral creatures. God has made us moral creatures, meaning he has placed in our hearts a law, an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. I would argue that not just from Genesis 1.26, I would argue that from Romans 1. Romans 1.18 talks about how God has made his truth evident within us. There's no one who has an excuse From the things that have been made, God has revealed himself, his eternal power, his divine nature. God has clearly revealed to the hearts of man that he is God and that we owe him obedience. 
That's, I think that is, that is what it is to be, at least a large part of what it is to be created in the image of God. We have an understanding, and originally we had the ability in Adam to be moral creatures and obey the moral law of God. Okay, so that's verse 26 of chapter 1, dealing with the image of God. There is an internal law that has been placed on the heart of man. But then secondly, there's an external precept or an additional command from chapter 2, which is don't eat of the tree of the garden uh, or the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. Does that second command, is that necessarily tied to the eternal character of God? Is that, is that necessarily a reflection of God's eternal nature and character? Let me put it another way. Would it have been possible for God to not have given that command and still remain God? Or let me put it another way. <laughs> Would it be possible for God to say, you can lie, I command you to lie, and still be God? Or I command you to murder. It is my will that you murder somebody. It's what I delight in as God, as a, as a precept, as a command. No, because the moral law is a reflection of God's character. The moral law is a reflection of God's character. Is chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, a, a reflection of God's character? In some ways, yes, but not inherently, because what happened after the fall? Did that command continue? Do, are we still commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, Kayla says yes. I mean, maybe, maybe in some ways, but we're not in the garden. It's not an ongoing perpetual command, is it? Do you, do you, from day to day, live with the application of the principle, I must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No. But do you live from day to day with the reality of the perpetual command, I must not murder? And does someone have to tell you, you shall not murder? Does someone have to tell you, you shall not murder? No, they, they don't, right? How do you know you shall not murder? Because you've been created in the image of God. And there is a part of his moral being, his moral character that has been impressed upon your heart so that you have this internal law that tells you what is right and what is wrong. Adam had that in the garden. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But what happened after the garden? Did the law, that internal law, did that law cease or did it continue? What do you all think? It continued, right? The moral law continued. How do we know it continued? Well, it, it's republished at Sinai, right? What happens on the Mount, at Mount Sinai? God gives the Ten Commands. Those commandments are a reflection of his moral character. Here's a question. What about from the time of the garden to the time of Sinai? Was there any command regarding God's moral character in between that period of time? There were no Ten Commandments, right? Nothing was written. But think about some of the passages we know. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Anyone? What, what's that, Bill? Murder. If you were to read Genesis chapter 4, do you think that Cain would have known that murder was wrong? Yeah, yeah, he, he knew that it was wrong, right? How did he know that it was wrong? Did he have the Ten Commandments from Sinai? No, it was placed on his heart. God had placed that command on his heart. There, there are a, a lot of others we could go to as examples. Think about, um, so there's, there's well, even, even in that Genesis 4 example, there's covetousness, right? Cain coveted 
his brother's approval. He hated Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. So he murdered his brother out of covetousness. What about things like the seventh commandment? Is there any, any reference to adultery prior to the Ten Commandments? Pharaoh was punished for taking a wife that was not his own. So that principle was operative in Genesis. Eighth commandment, stealing. Remember what happened when Joseph's brothers uh, came to visit him in Egypt before they knew that he was Joseph? What, what did Joseph do? He, he put some, some money in their sack, right? And then what did he accuse them of? Stealing. And it's clear from that account that stealing was wrong, right? They, they didn't they didn't assume that it was okay to steal. When they were accused of stealing, they were terrified because they knew this is a crime, this is wrong because the moral law of God has been placed on our hearts. No one needs to tell you it's wrong to steal. Even prior to the Mount Sinai commandments, it was known that to steal is wrong. It's wrong to covet. It's wrong to lie, to bear false witness. Uh, when Jacob is encouraged by his mother to deceive his father for the blessing, he says, I'm, there's a paraphrase, he says, essentially, I'm fearful of deceiving my father lest I receive a curse rather than a blessing. He knew it was wrong to lie. And so over and over again, prior to Mount Sinai, you have this clear reflection that the moral law of God is already on the heart of man. They don't need the Ten Commandments, per se, to know what is right or what is wrong. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. I promise all of this has a point, so just keep following along as best you can. Romans 2, verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or excusing uh, or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Paul says it very plainly there. Gentiles, non-Jews, people who have never received the commandments of God in written form, he says they have the law of God written on their hearts. Not, as we'll see, not in the new covenant sense of a desire to do God's law, but written on their hearts in the sense that they know what God's law requires in its essence, what is right and what is wrong. It's not a perfect knowledge because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but the knowledge is there. The conscience is there. The moral law has been written on the heart. All right, so why, why, does, that, why does that matter that there was law in the garden, there was law after the garden, and then that same law was codified in, uh, at Sinai in the Ten Commandments? Why does, why does all of that matter? Well, I think it points us to the fact, so some would argue the moral law of God is not binding on the Christian. Okay, we live in this other realm now where we're no longer bound by rules and commands. We're bound just by grace and the Spirit and love. And they fail to give the law as the framework for what it looks like to obey God. They say we're actually not bound by law, not even the moral law, because the moral law was given to Moses at Sinai and the New Testament makes clear that the Mosaic Covenant has ceased at the coming of Christ. So if the moral law was given at Sinai and the moral law has ceased with the cessation of the Mosaic Covenant, 
then you are no longer bound to keep the law. Everyone following that? But what happens if the Mosaic law actually didn't start with Moses? Or I should say, what happens if the moral law did not start with Moses, but precedes Moses? What if the Ten Commandments given to Moses are just a republication of the same law that has always been written on the, on the heart of man? And that's my point. The law of God has been from the very beginning in the garden. It has been on the hearts of man from the very beginning. It was clearly presented in the Ten Commandments, but not for the first time. First time written, but the law was always there. And so just as the law preceded Moses, the law also continues beyond Moses. Just because we've been delivered from the law of Moses and the curse of that law does not mean we've been delivered from the moral obligation to keep the law. So all of that to say, because the law began before Moses, it also extends beyond Moses. It didn't come to an end with the law of Moses ending at the coming of Christ. If you look down again at your bulletin or look on the back again, we'll move on to the threefold division of the law. These are verse, uh, paragraphs 3 to 5. There's, you'll notice there the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. So those are three common ways that the law has been divided up. All right, so what's the ceremonial law? Anyone want to throw out, what does the ceremonial law refer to? Leviticus is a big one, yeah. Most of Leviticus has to do with the ceremonial law, which has to do with what? Religious worship, right? Ceremonies. Who, who said something else? Yeah, sacrifices, exactly. Yeah, it has to do with worship, religious worship and ceremonies and ceremonial cleansings and those types of things. It's a ceremonial law. What was the purpose of the ceremonial law? Was it intended to be a permanent and perpetual law? No, we know that from Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews makes very clear that the purpose of the ceremonial aspects of the law was to point us to Christ. They were shadows. And when Christ came, the shadows were no longer relevant, were they? Because the substance had come. We don't need the shadows any longer when the real thing has arrived. So Christ came. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is no longer in place. It's abrogated. It is removed. Okay, so that's the ceremonial law. What about the judicial law? What's the judicial law refer to? Or the civil law? Yeah, governing the nation of Israel. That's right. So rules about what it looks like to live in the nation of Israel. How should it be governed and how should citizens live? So what are the consequences if your animal harms your neighbor's animal? Or what are the consequences if you accidentally kill somebody? Or what are the consequences if you intentionally kill somebody? What are the consequences if you steal something? All of that has to do with the judicial law as a nation. That law was given to the nation of Israel. But just like the ceremonial law, when Christ came, there was a transition that took place. And we read in the New Testament that those who are Abraham's descendants are not his descendants according to the flesh, but those who are according to the faith of Abraham, right? And so now the, the nation of God is not a physical nation in a particular territory. It's a spiritual nation, the church, who are children of Abraham by faith. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. That's what 1 Peter talks about in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
We are the people of Israel by faith because we've believed in the Messiah that was sent to Israel. So if there's no longer a physical nation that needs to be governed by physical uh, judicial laws, then the judicial law is no longer relevant. So the ceremonial law is no longer relevant because it's fulfilled in Christ. The judicial law is no longer binding because it has been done away with, with the coming of Christ. There's still principles there that are helpful to be applied from the judicial law. But what about the moral law? And so this is where, this is where a lot of the discussion has to, this is where a lot of the discussion takes place. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled and abrogated. The judicial law has been removed. But what about the moral law? Are you still, as a believer, required to keep the moral law? even though you're not required to keep the other two elements of the law. And this is where we would say, the Scriptures would say, and as the Confession teaches, yes, the, the moral law of God is still binding on everybody. If you read paragraph 5 with me from the Confession, it explains this. It says, The moral law forever binds everyone to obedience, justified people as much as all others. It binds everyone, not only in regard to its content, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator, who gave this law. Nor does Christ in any respect, uh, sorry, nor does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve our obligation to this law, but significantly strengthens it. Christ strengthens your obligation to keep the moral law of God. He doesn't remove it, he strengthens it. And so here's the question. Where can it be demonstrated from the New Testament that as a believer, you're still required to keep the moral law of God? And, and maybe all of this sounds irrelevant to you. As I prepared this, I thought, you know, who in the world would argue that you're not supposed to keep the moral law of God? Would anyone argue that? I mean, would any Christian argue you, you're no longer required to murder, to not murder, no longer required to not murder? Would any Christian argue you're no longer required not to steal? You know, as a Christian, you can murder and you can steal. It's, it's all right because the moral law is gone. Has anyone ever heard anybody argue anything like that? Noelle has. She knows some strange people. Oregon people. They are strange people. I, I don't know of anybody. I've never heard of anybody say, as a Christian, you know what, go murder because you're not under law. Um, of course, there's the Sabbath question. We'll come to that in a number of weeks. Certainly, people do deny the ongoing relevance of the Sabbath. But apart from the Sabbath, the other nine commandments, I don't think many people would say, you know what, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But I, I do think we fall into a different trap of thinking, you know what, I don't feel like obeying right now. I just don't feel like it. And the Bible tells me that I'm no longer under law but under grace. And in fact, it tells me that if I try to keep the law in the flesh, it's actually death and, and sin. So, you know what? If I don't feel like obeying, the best thing I can do is just not obey. Has anyone heard that sort of reasoning? Or even wrestled with that sort of reasoning in your own mind, in your own heart? <laughs> yeah, one person. I'm sure more. Probably more than that. With this sense of, you know what? I don't want to be a hypocrite. And if I, if I do what's right, at this point in my life, if I, if I do it with this kind of heart, it's just hypocrisy. It's duplicity. It's not really how I feel. And so I'm just not going to do it. Imagine that if I came home to my family at the end of a work day and walked through my front door and I had that sort of heart toward my family. And I said, you know, I just don't really feel like loving them. I know I'm supposed to be kind to my children and kind to my wife and supposed to 
you know, be gentle and look out for their interests instead of my own and be patient and all of that, but I just don't feel like it. And so I'm not going to. I'm actually going to be pretty rude tonight because I think that's probably what's true of who I am right now. And I want to be true. I want to be authentic. And so I'm just going to be a jerk. We, I mean, we don't think, we wouldn't think like that. I, honestly, I've sometimes thought like that, but that's not, that's not the way we should think about it, is it? We, we shouldn't think that way. We should think, you know what? I don't, I'm, I'm very selfish right now. I feel extremely selfish. I'm like only thinking about myself. But my obligation to my wife and to my children or to my roommates or whoever it is, my obligation is to love them, to serve them. And there are specific ways that I know that I'm supposed to do that, that God has told me to do that. And so whether I feel like loving my wife or my children in those particular ways at this moment or not, it is not pleasing to God and it's not helpful to them for me to say, I don't feel like doing it, so I'm not going to do it. The same is true in any respect with our relationship to God. Yeah, you, you may not feel like it, and, and you, you shouldn't settle for not feeling like it. You may not feel like it, but still there is a moral law that has been placed upon you. There are obligations that are on your life by your creator, by your maker. Those obligations have been present from the very beginning of the foundation of the earth. They don't change. They don't change with your feelings. And so whether you feel like obeying the Ten Commandments or not, you obey them, but you don't settle for that. And that's the difference of the New Covenant Christian. We don't just obey it outwardly. Even when we don't want to internally, we are crying out to God that by His Spirit, He would give us the desire. But in crying out, we don't neglect the responsibility because there is a moral responsibility that's been placed on you. So, so I think that's where it gets a little bit practical for us, is why does it matter that there is an ongoing, perpetual moral obligation to keep the law of God? Because it doesn't give you a way out. You can't just squeeze your way out of responsibility by saying, I'm a new covenant Christian, and I know I'm supposed to love, and if it's not from love, it's not pleasing, and so I'm just not going to do it. No, you're a Christian who is bound to do what is pleasing to God, whether you want to do it or not. And, and so there's, there's a distinction there. I think a helpful, a helpful emphasis when we recognize we are bound by the moral law. We should never settle for a heart that doesn't want to do his will, but we should never settle for disobedience either. And I think that's where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the moral law of God. So, so here's the question, though. Is that a right way of thinking? Is that right, or is that legalistic? Again, remember the foundation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law does not condemn you. But is it legalistic to say there's a moral obligation upon you and whether you want to obey it or not, you are obligated in Christ to obey the moral law of God? Is that legalistic? Well, the New Testament is full of those sorts of commands. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this is where some would say, see, all you have to do is love. doesn't matter. Just love your neighbor. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Some would read that, and they would take it away and say, see, Paul's saying, don't worry about the specific commandments, just worry about love. 
But what Paul is saying is actually love compels us to do the very things the law commands. It's not in contradiction to it. Love is actually what compels us to do them. If we're loving our neighbor, we're not going to be disinterested or unconcerned for not committing adultery or not murdering or not stealing or not coveting. It's love that makes us worried about those things. We want to fulfill those commands because we love. We don't push those commands aside because we love. I think this is an even, perhaps even better example from the book of Ephesians. Um, I'm going to walk through one, two, three, four, five, six different passages really briefly, six verses that have to do with the Ten Commandments in the book of Ephesians, particularly in the second, in the, in the second half of Ephesians, the last three chapters. So Ephesians 6, verse 2, basically the point here, it's, it's very interesting, in the last three chapters of Ephesians, the six, uh, the, the last six commandments are all explicitly commanded, are all explicitly given in the book of Ephesians. After he spends three chapters talking about our identity in Christ, the next three chapters basically expound on the Ten Commandments and tell us how we're to fulfill those as Christians. So Ephesians 6, verse 2, uh, well, beginning in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So if you were to ask Paul, is the moral law binding on the conscience of a Christian any longer? He would say, well, honor your father and mother. That's the first commandment with a promise, isn't it? So Paul would go to the law. He would say, this is how you honor God. You honor your father and mother. You fulfill the law, the Ten Commandments. And then in Ephesians 4, verse 26, we see the sixth commandment regarding murder. 4.26, Jesus says if, you, if you're angry, simply angry with your brother, you have murdered him. And Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's just an explicit command related to the, to the sixth commandment. Don't murder with your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 28, the, eighth, the seventh commandment of stealing. He who steals must steal no longer. Paul, that's, that's law. You can't just tell people don't steal. You have to tell them you should love your neighbor. You can't go beyond that. You just have to say love your neighbor. Because if you go any further than that, you're, you're, you're falling into legalism. Just say love your neighbor. The whole law is summed up in that. Don't worry about the specifics. Just say love your neighbor. Paul says no, don't steal. It's that simple. Like, you don't have to go any further than that when it comes to stealing. Just don't steal. Don't do it. Whether you want to or, don't, or, or do want to or, or don't want to, it doesn't matter. Just don't do it. Don't steal. It's a commandment. You obey it. That's Paul's point. And then verse 25, regarding the eighth commandment of bearing false witness, he says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you to his neighbor, quoting from the Old Testament. Don't lie. And then regarding adultery, the ninth commandment in chapter 5, verse 3, but immorality or impurity, he goes on to say, must not even be mentioned among you. Immorality, sexual immorality, adultery, those things must not even be named among you. The ninth commandment. And then the tenth commandment, covetousness. Again, in, in verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, any greed must not even be named among you. Don't be covetous. And, and Paul isn't padding it with all kinds of qualifications and exceptions. He's just saying, don't do it. It's very simple. Don't do it. But I want to. And if I want to, then it's wrong for me not to because I'm going against what I want to do, and, and I'm not supposed to do that because that's wrong. No, 
if what you want is sinful, then you do what you don't want to do in that particular moment. And you pray that God would give you grace to want to do the right thing instead. But the point is, the moral law is binding on the conscience of the believer. There's no, there's no squeezing out from under it. Jesus strengthened the law. He didn't remove it. He didn't take it away. You know, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus amplifies it. Even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in, her, in your heart. He amplifies it. He strengthens it. He doesn't remove it. So anyway, all that to say, the moral law is binding on the believer, not for your salvation, not for your justification, not for your acceptance with God, not for your adoption, not to make him love you, but to please him, to honor him, to obey him. The moral law is binding on you. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, let's look at the outline on the back again. I'll see where so there, there's a question there in letter D, is the distinction biblical? Is it right to make the distinction between the ceremonial, judicial, and moral? Because a lot of the argument up to this point has, is dependent on that distinction, saying the moral law is something distinct and separate uh, from the other two that have passed away. So is it right to make that distinction? Um, I won't go into these in detail for the sake of time. I'll just read them and quickly reference them. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, were dis- delivered in a distinct way in the Old Covenant. So how, how, was, how, was the, how were the Ten Commandments delivered to Moses? Anyone want to throw that out there? How were they delivered? Yeah, with, I thought you were raising your hand. You're saying his finger, his hand. God, God wrote it with his own finger, right? And where did he write it? On tablets of stone. Two tablets of stone. What about the ceremonial and judicial laws? Ceremonial and judicial laws. Where were those written and who wrote them? Moses wrote them, right? And where did he write them? Not on stone. He wrote them on parchment or on skins. Which is more permanent, stone or parchment? Stone. Why would someone write something on stone? I think I was, yeah, something, a country song recently I heard that had to do with grabbing a chisel and putting it in the stone so that long after I'm gone, they'll know uh, something about, I don't want you to leave. <laughs> when we put something in stone, the idea is it's, it's enduring. It goes beyond just our lifetime, our, our lifespan. And, and that's the idea. When God put the moral law on stone, the judicial and ceremonial law on parchment and on skin, he was showing this is an eternal law. This doesn't go anywhere. This is perpetual. It doesn't just fade away. And then not only was it delivered in a distinct way, but it was placed in a, dis- a distinct location. Letter uh, number two there, the distinct placement of the moral law. According to Hebrews 9, anyone know where the moral law was placed, the Ten Commandments? Where was it kept? The two tablets. The Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Were the judicial law and the ceremonial laws there? No, but the Ten Commandments were. They had a distinct place showing preeminence, a prominence among God's laws. And then the distinct emphasis of the moral law. I won't read these, but you could look them up on your own. Basically, these are, these are passages here that have to do with the fact that, yes, God delights in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but not as much as moral obedience. So these, if you go and look at these passages, you know, there's things like, do you delight in burnt offerings as much as you do a pure heart, uh, an obedience of heart? And, and the clear answer to that is, no, God primarily delights in an obedient heart. Uh, and the moral law is what 
cause our hearts to obedience. All right, so all of that to say, there is basis for distinguishing among the three types, uh, three aspects of the law, and making the moral law a distinct and perpetual element of God's law. All right, well, I'll, I'll finish here briefly with this final section, the function of the moral law. Uh, just to be very clear, as the confession is and as the Scriptures are, as believers, the law no longer functions as a covenant of works. In other words, your acceptance with God is not dependent upon your ability to keep the law of God. That is clear from passages like Galatians 3, 21 to 22. That's mentioned there. Romans 3, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There's no way to be justified, to be saved, to be made God's child, to be loved by him through your efforts to keep the law. But being under the law as a covenant of works and being bound to moral obedience to the law as a rule of life are two very different things. We're not under the law as a principle of life. We're under grace. We are saved by grace alone, by the love of God poured out through Christ. We're not under law for condemnation, but we are, in the context of grace, still bound to obedience to the law as a rule of life. And those are two very different things, being under the law and being bound to the law as a rule of life. And there's three different ways that the law continues to be a rule of life there listed. Uh, It shows us how to live. Those are things we've been looking at. The law tells us what it looks like to please God. You want to know what it looks like to honor God? The first four commandments how to tell you how to honor God by uh, vertically in relation to him. The, the other six commandments tell you how to honor God in your relationships with others. Vertically, the first four. Horizontally, the next six. It shows you how to honor God, how to please him, how to live for him. And so it shows us how to live. Secondly, it exposes our sin. It's the second use of the law. It shows you that you're sinful. It's like a mirror. And when you look in the mirror, it's like when you wake up in the morning and you go downstairs and you frighten yourself with the reality of what you look like at six o'clock in the morning. The, the law is like a mirror, and when we hold it up to ourselves, it shows us how ugly our hearts are, how much sin there is, because it's being held up in contrast to the perfect righteousness of God revealed in his law. It's, it's a frightening sight. It exposes our sin, and therefore it shows us our need for Christ. Uh, again, there's some passages there you can look up. And then it restrains corruption through threats and promises. So even as a believer, you know, we fall into this trap of thinking that um, obedience should only be motivated out of gratitude. And, and obedience as a believer should primarily be uh, motivated out of gratitude, but not exclusively. You know what another good motivation for obedience is? Is your life is far worse when you don't obey God. And your life will be far better when you do obey God. Not in the sense of his love and approval, his acceptance. You're not under law, you're under grace. But just in the sense of afflictions, God disciplines those he loves. If you choose to live a life of sin, uh, as a believer, if you choose to give in to sin and to temptation, uh, and you really belong to Christ, he's going to discipline you. Why would you choose that? Life is miserable when we choose to sin. But at the same time, uh, you, you could go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and see that God actually gives measures of, of, of grace and help and mercy to those who humble themselves. And so there is benefit to obedience. There is detriment to disobedience. And so not only out of gratitude, but just out of not wanting misery, affliction, sorrow, sadness, grief, just out of not wanting those things, consequences. Think about the way relationships are devastated because of our sin. Just by not desiring the effects of sin, we, we obey God's law. And so God's law restrains our sin by 
reminding us there are consequences and there are also benefits. Consequences to disobedience and benefits to obedience. All right, well, very last thing this evening, letter C. The law is not in conflict with the gospel. Hopefully that's been clear enough tonight. But if you think about the Old Testament promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God will write the law on our hearts, not in the sense of Romans 2 where we only know what the law is, but in the sense that God will actually give our hearts a desire to keep his law. That's the promise of the new covenant. Not, I will remove the law altogether so that you just live a life in the spirit without regard for the law. But I will, in the new covenant, I will place my law in your heart. I will make you want to keep my commandments from the heart. That's the promise of the new covenant. And so far from the new covenant being in conflict with the law or the gospel being in conflict with the law, the gospel actually brings about the fulfillment of the law in our lives by the Spirit. And that's what we began with from Romans 8. Uh, We could not keep the law in our sin, but having been saved by grace and given the Spirit of God, he now enables us to keep the moral commands of the law, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So always maintain those two distinctions. You are saved by grace. You are not under law when it comes to your salvation. You are saved by grace, and therefore you have the obligation to live day in and day out according to the law of God and the power of his Spirit. All right, well, let's end our study with that. I'll pray for us, and then we'll sing together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for your law, and we thank you that it often does reflect our own sinfulness and our shortcoming, and we thank you that not only do you reveal our sin through your law, but you also reveal the righteousness of Christ through your law. And we thank you that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law for us, that we might no longer be under sin and condemnation, but under grace. And we do pray that as those who walk in grace and in your spirit, you would cause us to love and delight in your commands and that our lives would be filled with obedience to everything you've commanded us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he's present with us in our lives day by day by his spirit. We pray that your spirit would continue to sharpen and refine us that we might be good reflections of your righteous character. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.